This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. I'm going to start by retelling one of the stories that Sharda told last night. It's a little bit of a cardinal sin among teachers, but I'll do it anyway because it's such a good story. She mentioned that there was a Zen master who was asked about the value of practice. In the version that I heard, the Zen master was asked the question, what's the value of a lifetime of practice? His response was an appropriate response. When I first heard that reply, I thought that was really wimpy for a Zen master. <laughs> I thought that sounded like something a Vipassana teacher might say. <laughs> but that a Zen master should be uh, much more of a warrior, and they should say something like, after a lifetime of practice, a Zen master is able to sit up in full lotus while he's dying or she's dying with a perfectly straight back and compose a spontaneous haiku summing up their life's understanding. <laughs> That's sort of what I was expecting. And so this appropriate response, uh, I don't know. But the more I thought about this answer, the more I appreciated it. Because what it says is we have to have that wakefulness in every single moment. It means every single moment, life's presenting us with changing conditions and new situation. And we have to have the right response to meet that moment. There's no formula for that. Only the awakeness of, you could say, wisdom or awareness can bring that about. So as I thought about it, this is really a beautiful way to describe the fruit of our practice. For me, the Brahma Viharas have provided one of the best roadmaps of what constitutes an appropriate response to life. They, together with the near and far enemies, give us a whole uh, terminology for understanding the way the heart relates to these changing conditions of life. The Brahma Viharas themselves represent the awakened response. The near and far enemies represent the not-so-awakened responses. So when you think about it, in general, the heart is open and tuning into the well-being of others, that's loving-kindness. When it encounters suffering, the awakened heart responds with compassion. When it encounters happiness, the awakened heart responds with sympathetic joy. And when it's not particularly being tested, it can hold all the joys and sorrows in the beautiful balance of equanimity, the practice you did this afternoon. And then the near and far enemies map out how we fall into uh, less than awakened responses to the same changing conditions of life, the joys and sorrows. And I'll touch on a couple of those as we go. So overall, I think they provide a really good groundwork for kind of evaluating our response moment after moment after moment. It's pretty complete. This evening, I want to talk particularly about the response of joy appreciative joy or sympathetic joy that's pointed to by the quality of mudita, the practice we did yesterday afternoon. As I mentioned, this has the potential for being the happiest practice among the Brahma Viharas, and in fact, the happiest practice that I know of, uh, because it feeds on happiness. It is about happiness meeting happiness. Just a simple example, I got a phone call from a friend I hadn't spoken to for a while, and picked up the phone. I was really happy to hear from her. And I said, how are you? And immediately, with a great deal of enthusiasm, she said, I'm wonderful. And without even thinking, sort of triggered by her voice and the tone, I said, I'm wonderful too. <laughs> I didn't even wait for her to ask me. That was sort of the impact of the mudita. I just got 
infused and enthused from her energy, and that's what came out of me. So it's this beautiful double hit of happiness. It's sometimes called sympathetic joy because we resonate in sympathy with another. It's like, if you know the uh, instrument, the sitar, it's got seven main strings on top that you pluck, and then seven uh, smaller strings underneath that are usually not plucked. Those are called the sympathetic strings. So when you pluck a frequency, the strings underneath that are tuned to that resonate, and they give that rich, kind of metallic, jangly sound that the sitar has. So it's like our heart has these sympathetic strings and resonate to the happiness around us. The Dalai Lama said that if you can be happy because of another's happiness, your odds for happiness go up by six billion to one. (laughs) That's a lot better than Vegas. So put your chips down. This is the bet to make. It's a good bet. It's very, very helpful to cultivate this as a part of your practice. Joy is a really integral part of the spiritual path. I'll talk toward the end about kind of how it fits in to the whole Buddhist unfolding toward liberation. It's an integral component of the move to liberation. As you develop it, you'll see that the emphasis on joy keeps the mind inclining to what's skillful and what's wholesome. It keeps the mind in a positive and helpful state. So in that, it's two of the four right efforts which are to uh, bring about and then maintain skillful qualities of mind. James is becoming known as the joy guru in our scene because he's been leading a class for the last couple of years in Berkeley called Awakening Joy. And it was really out of generosity that he let me give the joy talk in uh, in this retreat because he's sort of starting to own the topic. He's getting a little bit of a copyright on the subject matter, so I'm happy he let me share in it tonight. But James' class started off modestly, I don't know, a hundred or so the first time around. And each iteration through word of mouth and people getting a lot of benefit, it's steadily grown. So in the current class series, between people who come to Berkeley and are there in person and those participating by email, the number registered are up to, I think, 685. Is that right? Yeah, in the current class. And uh, it's probably going to be even bigger in future, but I'll let him tell you about that. The fact that so many people have responded to this teaching is really a sign that there's a thirst in our community of practitioners for this element. Maybe we spent too much time talking about the Four Noble Truths. You know, suffering and craving over the years, and people want to hear a different tune now. But there is this uh, large welling of interest and appreciation for being able to uh, find ways to bring these qualities more to life in our daily life as well as in our retreat practice. A big part of this bringing to life is noticing them when they're there. It's funny, but I noticed in the early days of my practice, I would consistently overlook beautiful qualities of mind. Because when they came, I thought, well, this is what I've been expecting all along. Why did you take so long in getting here? (laughs) And when you think about it, you know, it really lines up with ego's project. We use ego to refer to this small sense of self, false sense of separate self that's based on self-centered interests. Ego's project is things should always be happy. Things should never be unhappy, not even to the slightest degree. That's the project that ego is about creating. Somehow it believes that it can do it. Those assumptions crumple under the early days of retreat, usually. (laughs) Nonetheless, it strives to maintain this fiction. And so when happy states come, ego goes, yeah, that's what I was about to create. (laughs) So ego is gratified, thinks its work is done, and it goes to sleep. And it may only wake up again when things get difficult. And the ouch kind of 
wakes us up and makes us realize something else is going on. So it's very important to notice. You see, the Buddha wasn't biased in this way. He wasn't biased to wholesome states of mind or unwholesome states of mind. His bias was on emptiness, or you could say zero. So when a wholesome state came, he recognized that's wholesome. You know, that's on the positive side of the meter, helpful for spiritual practice and awakening. When a painful state came, he recognized that's not so skillful or helpful. That's on the difficult side of the spectrum. But he always kept his mind in the middle so he could clearly see one or the other. So we need to develop this skill also so that when wholesome states come, the beautiful states come, we really know this is loving kindness. This is contentment. This is joy. The more we recognize them, feel them in the body and in the mind, the more we learn the way back to them. And so the more possible it is that they will visit again. We become familiar and on good terms with them. As the Buddha put it, what one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So as we turn the mind in this direction, these beautiful states come to visit more often. I was really struck by the power of uh, Mudita last fall. I'd taught a long retreat in, on the East Coast. And then after that retreat, uh, I stayed on and with two of my friends taught a weekend retreat, silent retreat on this theme of Mudita practice. A lot of the people who came in had never practiced Mudita before. And I'd never taught it intensively before. I mean, part of the reason I did it is I wanted to learn about it. So people were just there for two days, from Friday night to Sunday evening. And you know what the first two days of a retreat are like. The first day is all sleepiness, so that's difficult. And the last day, as you probably noticed, starts to be about going home. So, you know, you're not much present on the first and last day, and I didn't have many expectations for the weekend because it was a first day and a last day. <laughs> but very curiously, people really applied themselves and got tremendous benefit from just two days of practice with this. At the end of the retreat, we just asked in the hall like this, what was your experience of, of these two days? One woman raised her hand and said, this is the happiest that I felt in years based on these two days of practice. Since that retreat, I started practicing uh, mudita a lot in my daily life, and I noticed that it made a real difference, that my mind started to focus on the beautiful and uplifting qualities of life uh, more, much more than it had before. So just shifting our focus in this way can really make a difference in how things feel. Remember that the phrase we're using for mudita is, may your happiness and good fortune continue. So as you turn to yourself or a benefactor or a friend, neutral person, difficult, this is what we emphasize. We focus on their happiness and good fortune. And seeing so much of it around picks us up. We sometimes tend to forget how much there is in the world. Then, once we've cultivated this kind of practice, these states of mind, sympathetic joy, appreciative joy, become a really terrific ally in our life as well as in our practice. A couple of years ago, I was in Burma uh, for a six-week retreat. I'd never practiced in Burma, and I was very interested to spend some time with this concentration master named Paok Sayadaw. He's a monastery in the southeast of the country. Because I was um, there for a while, I had the opportunity to ordain as a, as a monk, as a bhikkhu, to take robes. I had done that uh, earlier in Thailand in the 80s. And I'd, ever since I'd left the robes in Thailand, I'd, I'd had a longing to, to be in robes again. And Sayadaw offered me the opportunity to do that for the six weeks I was there. So I ordained. In fact, I arrived at the monastery one afternoon as a, as a layman. The next morning, I bought my robes, my head was shaved, and by mid-afternoon, I was a full uh, bhikkhu again. <laughs> it was kind of a quick transition. <laughs> The next day, the rains retreat started. You may know that the life of the monk and nun are such that for three months of the year, they're stationary. They can't travel. This is a season when in India and, and Asia too, 
the rice crops are planted and growing, and they didn't want monks trampling through the rice paddies and killing off the, the new shoots. So the monks and nuns were settled for these three months. So I arrived at the start of the rains retreat, and the next day, the rain started. And this is a corner of Burma that's very wet. It's uh, slammed by the monsoon coming right off the Indian Ocean. It gets 120 inches of rain a year, most of it in the first two months of the rains retreat. <laughs> so I got there just at the start, and we were getting three inches of rain a day, sometimes all day long. I didn't see the sun for weeks at a time. Well, one of the things that happened in between my first ordination and my more recent one is I forgot how to tie my robes. And it's not easy to dress in a sheet. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever tried it to keep your body concealed wearing a sheet, but uh, it's not that easy. So I would be walking back from lunch with a full bowl of hot food and the dessert on top, holding an umbrella while my robes were slipping off my shoulder. <laughs> and the very devout Burmese lay people were kneeling on the ground as I passed out of their devotion for a practitioner, even, even such a practitioner as I. <laughs> the weather was difficult. My hut was full of bugs. You know, Asian bugs are really gorgeous, and they're, they're really big tropical bugs. There's nothing like them. There was a about two-foot-long gecko that started calling very loudly outside my bedroom at nine at night when I was getting ready for bed. Every day I had to walk 15 minutes up a hill to the meditation hall. That was the height. You're just across the way. I was a 15-minute walk up a big hill from the meditation hall, and the schedule was not so easy. The shortest sit of the day was an hour and a half. And the longest it was two hours. So there were lots of challenges. Adjusting the robes, the diet, I lost about half a pound a day while I was there. So as the rain wore on and on and I didn't see the sun, my spirit started to sink. I thought, like you probably have, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, I could have been much more comfortable practicing in the West. Then my, my spirits were getting particularly low about three weeks in, and I figured I needed some help. So my teacher was really just teaching me concentration practice. So I didn't feel this was a question for him. So I had a photograph, an altarpiece of the Dalai Lama. I brought it with me, and it was on a table in my room. So I turned to the Dalai Lama, and I said, uh, I'm having a hard time. Do you have any advice for me? And immediately... He replied. And his voice came through in that peculiar uh, Indian-accented English that he had. And he said, hmm, yes. He said, stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. A positive attitude is the best support. And then the, the transmission ended. But it was a very clear message, and because it had come from such a good source, I took it as a practice instruction. <laughs> so for the next period of time, I often would work at keeping my mind cheerful, optimistic, and confident, if I could remember what cheerful even felt like, which wasn't so easy. And when I could, it made a real shift in the way I was relating to the situation. And the fact is that that cheerfulness, that optimism, that confidence is in each of us if we can only remember it. And sometimes I could just bring it up by thinking of it, by turning my mind to it. And when I did, it made a big shift in how I felt in those conditions, those difficult conditions. So this is something that as we develop becomes a tremendous refuge. We find that we can turn our mind to these uplifting qualities, and the mind knows more and more how to go there, how to touch them and bring them alive in the present moment. The Dalai Lama, of course, is a pretty happy guy himself, as you probably know. A friend told me a story about a gathering of scientists that took place in Dharamsala, where he lives. 
It was sponsored by the Mind and Life Institute. Every year, a group of scientists meets with His Holiness to talk about the intersection between Buddhism and science. In recent years, they've been focusing on neuroscience. A lot of interesting work is done in that area. In between the formal sessions, having tea, there was a chance for the scientists just to chat with the Dalai Lama. So one of the scientists went up and asked him a personal question. He said, Your Holiness, what was the happiest time of your life? It was an interesting question huh, of the Dalai Lama. He's had such a uh, varied life. So, you know, you think of what might be when he's a child, growing up with his parents uh, in this small village in the countryside of Tibet, very idyllic kind of lifestyle. Might be after he was recognized and brought to Lhasa and installed as the Dalai Lama, living in the Potala while Tibetan Buddhism was still really alive and and flourishing, and he was being tutored and learning a lot. So I was, I was hanging on the edge of my seat for the answer, the happiest period of the Dalai Lama's life. And without any hesitation, my friend said, he answered, hmm, I think right now. <laughs> That's the right answer. <laughs> it's absolutely the right answer. As we cultivate the quality of mudita, we start to tune into happiness in our life, in the lives of others, and we start to get familiar with the different kinds of happiness that are available. One happiness that's available for us as lay people is the happiness of sense pleasures. Pleasant experiences of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, and of touch. So this is the whole area of uh, good food and pleasant music and pleasant drinks and sensuality and enjoying movies, and, uh, the arts, sculpture and painting. All of these are the, are the basis of pleasurable experiences through the five senses. This is part of our life as lay people. The Buddha referred to this over and over again. In choosing this life, we open ourselves to pleasant experiences on these levels. If we wanted to cut off from sense pleasures, we might as well live the life of a renunciate. Because in the renunciate life, one deliberately does not seek out pleasures of the physical senses in order to turn the attention uh, more and more completely inward. But as lay people, we are open to the pleasures of the senses. And take a look and see in your life if these experiences don't have an uplifting quality to them. In spiritual circles, you know, we often poo-poo sense pleasures because, you know, the truth is that the pleasures of meditation and dharma practice, realization, are greater than sense pleasures and more reliable. But that does not negate the happiness that comes from the pleasures of the senses. So please notice, in your life, the uplift that pleasurable activities bring into your hearts and minds. This is one of the things that we can enjoy. We learn that they're temporary. And we learn their happiness is limited, but the happiness nonetheless uh, is real. Here on retreat, our sense pleasures are much, much simpler, but they're still there. You know, waking up in the morning and it's a little cool in the residence halls and maybe your window's been open all night, but there's a hot shower waiting for you. Or you roll down the hill for breakfast and it's been raining and it's a little damp and a little chilly and there's a, a hot cup of tea for you. You go down the hill at lunchtime and there's this beautiful meal we had today and with all kinds of spices and great flavors. And then one of the greatest pleasures in, in retreat life for me was lying down at the end of the day. <laughs> that was sometimes the moment I looked forward to all day long. You know, there were days days like that. I just couldn't wait to lie down at the end of the day. And the only thing that was really disappointing is how short it lasted. <laughs> because I'd be really tired, I'd fall asleep like that, and the next thing I knew I was waking up to start all over again the next morning. But that's a delightful feeling, lying down at the end of a good day of work. As you get into this lifestyle, this really simple lifestyle, you may have noticed that the senses get even more uh, awake. And simple pleasures bring a lot of delight. 
Some of my favorite meals on retreats have just been the taste of an orange or of a cup of tea after days in retreat because it tastes so, uh, so rich. And the Buddha mentioned this too. He said that robes, alms food, a hut, and a straw seat will seem rich and luxurious to one who has renounced. We're just appreciating how our senses really wake up in this setting and we're much more open here and it goes more deeply. Another kind of happiness that we start to tune into is the happiness of good conduct. When we live a life according to the precepts that we talked about at the beginning of the retreat, we enjoy what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. You come in to meditate and you find you don't have as many regrets about your actions as you once did at an earlier time in your life. James mentioned the list of his 10 most awful mistakes. I also had a list in my early retreat. I I only aimed for 10, but I filled 10 quite easily and went through a lot of remorse about those. As the years go by, and I've worked consciously to practice with non-harming, that list is uh, more remote, a lot shorter. And when I come to sit, there's an easier settling now than there used to be. The Buddha said that um, of the blessings of the lay life, the bliss of blamelessness is the greatest. To have a, a good feeling about the way we've acted toward others. There's the joy of nature. After I ordained as a monk the first time in Thailand, I went to practice in a monastery that was in the north uh, outside of Chiang Mai. It was right out in the country. It was a beautiful uh, spot. The monastery was set at the base of a river gorge. So there was this uh, river running through it and tall uh, hills on both sides, cliffs on both sides. The nuns' huts were on one side of the river and the monks' huts were on the other. So no (laughs) dilly-dallying, for sure. The Thai people being so hospitable gave me the best hut in, uh, on the property, which was the one most upstream. And from it, I couldn't see or hear any other people. So it was a very beautiful setting, very isolated, very quiet and private. But there were challenges in that environment. I was there for three months to practice. There was a teacher, but the teacher didn't speak English and I didn't speak Thai. So we had no way to communicate. So for three months of uh, intensive practice, I didn't have any interviews and I didn't have any Dharma talks. It really was uh, quite self, self-reliant. self uh, The teacher would occasionally come up to uh, bring visitors up to my kuti. And uh, usually I'd be meditating, which was, which was good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they'd, they'd stand outside my hut and look in through the windows and the teacher would see me meditating and all I'd hear or all I could understand him saying was D, D, which means good, good in Thai. So I, I felt grateful I was meditating at that <laughs> point in time. But that was about all the confirmation I got around my practice. But what really sustained me, and I think what kept uh, my spirits good during that time, was the beauty of the nature that I was in. Every day, seeing the sun climb over one of those cliffs and flood the gorge with sunshine at the end of the day disappear, and the constant sound of the stream outside my hut. There's also a beautiful mango tree uh, growing near my house. It was mango season, so the ripe mangoes were falling on the ground and that beautiful perfume. Unfortunately, I couldn't eat them. As a, as a monk, you're only allowed to take what a person, what a human being has put into your hands. So I couldn't even collect the fallen mangoes, but they smelled great. <laughs> and here, <laughs> thank you. It was poignant for me too. <laughs> Here, the nature is so available. I've, I've been in a number of meditation spots around the world, 
And I don't think I've ever been in one that has the combination of architectural beauty and natural beauty that this place has. It makes it a very special place to practice. And of course, between the two, I would always pick the natural over the architectural beauty. So you can open uh, you know, so wonderfully to the nature around here. The golden hills, the vivid blue sky, those white clouds, the deer who are, seem so less afraid here than they are anywhere else that I run into them. This is a poem by Mary Oliver called The Sun. Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every evening, relaxed and easy, floats toward the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone? And how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower streaming upward on its heavenly oils. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world Or have you too gone crazy for power, for things? Here we really have the time, the chance, just to be with nature, just to open to it. And it's augmented by another of the joys that comes from retreat, which is the joy of concentration or stillness. And I trust that each of you have found this to some degree or other during the days that you're here time that the mind settles just a little bit from its usual whirl, time that you can drop into your heart and feel that meta-connection with yourself or another. These different levels of peace, I think, were the hook that kept me coming back on retreat. I'd touch a level that I'd never touched in my daily life. I'd go, wow, that is so amazing. If that's possible, I wonder what else is possible. So I'd go back again and see, and then I found an even deeper level of peace. And I would come back again to see what else was possible. The Buddha said that these levels of peace, basically the the delight of it is that the hindrances have fallen away. The mind's not stirred by liking and disliking, by pushing and pulling. He said being released from the hindrances like this is being let out of prison after a long term in a cell. It's really a wonderful, joyful feeling. In the Mudita practice, we come again and again to appreciate the joy in a friend's life. When I started to do my practice um, over the winter of Mudita, a good friend was uh, in a five-month retreat on the East Coast and happens to be someone for whom retreat is the happiest activity um, in their life. So as I was sitting in meditation and doing mudita, I would think about them sitting in meditation on the other side of the country, being so fulfilled in their uh, activity, and that would just pick me up. So finding a friend that has something uh, wonderful going on is a great support for the joy arising in our own heart. And then we open to mudita for all beings. And this is really, this can be a trip. Um, I came across this video on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen it. It's been seen by a lot of people, so probably some of you have, called Free Hugs. Has anybody seen it? Right, a lot of you have seen it. So what happened was this guy in Australia got the idea to go into a shopping mall in Sydney with a big sign on which he had written in big capital letters, free hugs. And he stood in the middle of the shopping mall and just held the sign up. How much nerve would it take to do something like that? You know, it's not something I would think of doing offhand. And then a local rock group kind of got turned on by it 
and uh, wrote a song and made a music video based on this concept of free hugs. And that's what's up on YouTube now. So in the video, you see a lot of people going by, this is sort of like toward the beginning, who look at this, look at this guy like he's kind of crazy. What is this guy doing? Is he a weirdo? You know, is he a sicko and something really strange going on here? And they don't want to get too close. You know, they sort of walk around. So they don't get too close to him. And then some brave souls take the plunge, take it at face value and go up and hug him. And then they kind of laugh afterwards. Because honestly, the idea of hugging a stranger in a shopping mall is kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> it really is weird. But then once one person starts and takes the plunge, other people come up and do it, and the energy just gets contagious. And pretty soon people are laughing and smiling, and there are these guys skateboarding by and running into him on their boards, and you just feel the contagious joy of it all. And so this movement has kind of taken off and it's spread. You know, now there are free hug videos from uh, Japan and Israel and Europe and... It's all over the world. There's kind of this international movement now. So that's kind of fun. You, you know, you don't have to be a shopper in Sydney anymore to have free hugs. And one of the things I like to reflect on, as we talked about a little bit the other day, is that I'll say virtually every human being, whatever their circumstances, whatever their condition, has some happiness in their life. And this exploration is a, is a very rewarding one to check that out and see if it's true with your friends, even the ones who are going through a hard time. See if there's not something that picks their heart up at different points in their routine, in their days, in their weeks. I had a good example of this on a metta retreat a few years ago. There was a yogi on the retreat from uh, Manchester, England, Manchester is not one of the happiest cities uh, on the face of the earth. It's one of those northern industrial cities. The weather is bad. In the winter, it's really cold. The architecture is old and gray. Yet, she, had a, you know, she was a lovely person. And her, her job in Manchester was working uh, to transition refugees who had come from third world countries to uh, England. And the reason they had come is that they were fleeing conditions in their own country where they would have been uh, imprisoned or tortured or killed, uh, primarily because of their uh, political or social views. So here were women uh, from the third world, mostly warm countries, who'd had to leave their culture, uh, their families, their lives that were familiar, and move to this cold, gray, northern city and adapt to a completely foreign life. And she was helping transition them to that life. And I said, uh, could you find some mudita uh, in their life? Could you find joy in their lives? And she said, absolutely. That was one of the most amazing things about these women. Their spirits were so resilient. And even in the midst of all the difficulties they were dealing with, they maintained this really optimistic and positive outlook as they created their new lives there. Reflecting on that sometimes makes me um, feel a little bit humble. You know, when I grumble about, you know, I didn't get enough protein at tea, I think, wow. <laughs> Things could be a lot tougher than that. So as you practice mudita, remember you want to tune in to what makes the other person happy, not necessarily what would make you happy. When we first uh, bought the land here at Spirit Rock, it was in 1987, we inherited an old horse who had been a quarter horse on this land, round, rounding up cattle, running up and down the hills for years. It was leased for cattle before we owned it. And the owner didn't want to take him and we, we took him. So you know where the horse field is now. He lived there for about the first 15 years that uh, we owned the place. So he died about five years ago. His name was Bob. <laughs> Bob the quarter horse. 
my wife is a horse person, so she took on the, the charge of looking after him. At that time, there was no other horse in that field. It was just old Bob who was literally out to pasture. So she would come down every morning and uh, make sure that he had some feed and some water and that he was healthy. So in the winter, the horse trough where he would get his water freezes over cold winter morning, so she'd have to break through the ice. Sometimes when it's so wet in the winter, the ground would never dry and he got abscesses in his foot and she'd have to take his foot and soak it in a uh, bucket of hot water with Epsom salts. Getting a horse to stand still while you lift their hind leg into a bucket with Epsom salts is not the easiest maneuver. <laughs> and Sally did it, you know, sort of happily every day because she, loved, she loves horses. It would not have been my cup of tea. <laughs> but I could sort of appreciate her connection to nature and to the horses while she did that. A few years later, we had um, skunks who came uh, into the crawl space underneath our house. It was winter and they were looking for a dry place to go. They particularly enjoyed um, bouncing up and down on our furnace at about two in the morning. <laughs> which you know, would reverberate with the sound of the aluminum casing. And then other evenings about three in the morning, we'd get awakened by this rich musky smell <laughs> drifting up through our bedroom. And we'd know the skunks were down there. So Mudita was not exactly my initial response, <laughs> but I was able to appreciate the fact they were warm and dry until we could manage to move them on to more natural habitat. So the far enemy of Mudita is envy. And this is a case where we look at somebody else's happiness and our heart doesn't go into uplift. When I went into the Peace Corps um, shortly after college, I broke up with my girlfriend in order to go. And I was in Malaysia teaching. And a few months after I'd gotten there, I got a letter from my best friend telling me that he and my ex-girlfriend had gotten together and were in a relationship. Um, joy was not the first emotion that <laughs> I felt on, on that occasion. And similarly, sometimes when we hear reports of friends who are doing really well, it may be hard to feel that uh, quality of joy for them. You know, maybe a friend of ours buys a house and we haven't yet been able to do that. Or somebody gets a promotion at work or some kind of recognition that we might have liked to have ourselves. It may not be so easy to feel that for a colleague. Because of this, some, some teachers say that mudita is the hardest of the Brahma-viharas to practice. As though with, with somebody getting more happiness, there's not enough left over for us. It's like there's a finite pool, and if they get that much, we don't have enough. But actually what I think is going on underneath that is some kind of comparing mind. That if somebody is doing really well, we take that as meaning, oh, they're a better person. Or maybe they're a better person than I am. So instead of just saying, oh, they're having more good fortune in one area of their life, we take it as an up and down situation. Oh, it means they're better than I am. But that, that assumption is just off. You can't compare two people just on the basis of one quality. This same mechanism works also in the near enemy to compassion. The near enemy to compassion is um, pity. And if you think about what pity is, it's a kind of looking down on somebody. It's like, oh, I'm sorry things are going hard for you, but you know, I don't have that problem. And we kind of use it as a way to distance ourselves from the other person and that gives us a sense of uh, superiority based on the fact that things are going better in our life than they're going in this person's life. So when we look on joy and sorrow in that way, we can use this comparing mind to put ourselves up or down. But as the Buddha said, those comparisons are diluted. And that's why these are called the, the enemies of the Brahma-vihara states. As we turn the practice of mudita for ourselves, 
really what, what comes through in my experience is the quality of gratitude. Gratitude is a really beautiful state where we appreciate our own blessings because, number one, it um, doesn't really encourage wanting because we're aware of how many gifts we already have. And also it doesn't encourage disliking because we're aware of the abundance that's there. So it's a very skillful state of mind at deflecting both desire and aversion. One of our friends is a, um, a wise uh, teacher and also a grandmother. The one Christmas day, she called up her, uh, her granddaughter, who was probably about five or six at the time, and said to the granddaughter, did you get a lot of presents today? The granddaughter said, yeah, it was great. And the grandmother said, well, when you, when you get lots of presents, does it make you thankful for what you have, or do you want more? And the little girl said, oh, Nana, I want more. <laughs> and the grandmother just dropped in, oh, that's too bad. And the little girl was listening and sort of brought her up, and she said, well, what do you mean? And so the grandmother explained, well, haven't you noticed that when you want more, it doesn't feel so good? And when you're happy with what you've got, it feels really good. And the little girl goes, oh, Nana, you're right. So this is a really kind of simple teaching on gratitude. It feels good when we can find that place to appreciate all the blessings that we have. And all of us here have so many things to be grateful for. A friend of, uh, friend of mine worked in a refugee camp in Thailand. And he was in the position of training the teachers who were uh, teaching the refugees who were coming um, from Laos and Cambodia because of the wars, and often from the hill tribes of uh, those countries, coming into Thailand and being retrained for relocation to the United States. So coming out of the hill tribe life, which is very simple, they had to learn things like uh, how to use money, what coins were, how a toaster worked, what a washing machine was, how to read a bus schedule. They were being trained in those kind of simple uh, Western skills in the camps. And as part of the discussion uh, my friend was having with the people in the camp, he once asked this teenage girl, what are the most important things in life for you? And this girl replied, the most important things in life are fire, rice, and water. And you know, those would be the most important things for us too if we didn't have them. But because we have them so available, we tend to take them for granted. But if we just step back a bit and think about all the human beings on the face of the planet who don't have adequate food or clothing or shelter or medicine, then we sort of realize how fortunate we are that all of us in this room were well fed today. You know, most of us, I suspect, have reasonable access to health care if, uh, if we're ill. We probably, most of us, have a roof to go home to that's over our heads. So these are all uh, a basic level of blessings that I think most of us do enjoy. And then in addition, we also possess something that the Tibetans, from a Buddhist point of view, call a precious human birth. And that is the um, circumstances and situations that have allowed us to be where we are today. That is, we were born uh, at a time when the teachings of liberation were available, when there were people who were practicing the authentic teachings to liberation, when there were people who were sharing them, when our minds were clear enough to be able to open to and appreciate those teachings, and when we have the leisure time to be able to practice toward our own liberation. And when you think about this set of circumstances, there are not many people on the planet who have all these circumstances 
as well. So many, many blessings for everyone, uh, every one of us in this hall. Toward the end of a retreat, uh, gratitude is something that uh, gets mentioned a lot. You know, I heard it a, a number of times in the interviews today. And I just encourage you to turn the mind to that as it comes up over these days. Let that feeling grow in you. Um, one of the people in uh, the hall tonight started a very beautiful practice of gratitude. Started it and reported it to a class that uh, we were all doing, and then it sort of spread from there, and now a number of people have picked it up. And that is, at the end of each day, would email one or two things that he was grateful about to a buddy, his gratitude buddy. And the gratitude buddy would do the same. So that at the end of every day, there would be this practice before going to bed, emailing to your buddy one or two things you were grateful for that day. And do it as a daily practice. And so that helps to just turn the mind regularly to the things that we appreciate in our life. On one retreat, I made a list, because my mind was getting a little bit aversive, I made a list of all the things I was grateful for in my life, because I wanted to offset that aversion. So I just took half an hour and just wrote down on one page of paper, line after line, of the things that I appreciated in my life. And they just kept coming and coming. The more I reflected on it, the more of them came out. And then during that retreat, I'd pick that paper up and read it every morning. And that would kind of set the tone for my day. It's a wonderful thing to do to focus on this quality of gratitude. One of the things I often feel grateful for, and I know a lot of you do too, is gratitude that this path exists. Grateful that there is a clear way to move from suffering to freedom, and all we need to do is walk it, that the instructions are there. And in thinking about gratefulness, how did you get turned on to this path? Have you ever thought about that? What led you into practice spiritual life at all, not necessarily this Buddhist path, but a spiritual path, a spiritual life. Think about the people who kind of helped nudge you that way. It may seem kind of like chance. Wow, it was just an accident. I, you know, I saw a sign in the health food store for a meditation class. Or one of my good friends had had an experience and suggested that I come along and check it out. It may seem kind of random. And in fact, you may know people from a very similar background to you, similar growing up or education or work or something like that, similar temperament, who never found their way into a path. How, how does that happen? I don't think it's just random. You know, I think this is part of the movement of what in an earlier age we might have called fate or destiny. But from a Buddhist point of view, I think we could call karma. There's something in our past actions that has predisposed us all in this direction. This is from the Chippewa Native American tradition. Sometimes I go around pitying myself while all the time I'm being carried across the vast sky by great winds. We don't know the great winds that are taking care of our lives. We don't know the combination of forces that have brought us here. But we can trust that those forces are at work and use that as part of our faith and confidence. Then I want to just close by describing the role of joy in the overall path to liberation. The Buddha described this in a a discourse called the Discourse on the Links in the Samyutta Nikaya. He said that um, difficulty in life leads to our questioning, which leads to faith, and that faith leads to joy. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? That suffering is a link that brings us into joy. As we start to question, we start to get a sense that the path exists 
that is a joyful place. Then this joy starts to uh, bring our interest into the present moment. As the present moment gets inviting and rich, the mind collects in this level of interest and uh, alertness called piti in Pali, or rapture in English. And this is another quality that increases the sense of delight, so much so that we learn that we can start to trust in that. And it settles down some of the wandering of the mind. And this quality of delight in the Dharma leads to uh, tranquilizing of our mind and body. And as the tranquilizing happens in mind and body, we come to a different level of uh, a kind of delight called happiness. The Pali word is sukha. Another word is contentment. I like this word sukha because it sounds kind of like sugar. And sukha is a very sweet state of mind. So this uh, joyful interest has risen into energy, been pacified through tranquility, and settled out into this deep state of contentment called sukha, or happiness. And in this state of uh, sukha, or happiness, the mind starts to find its contentment from within itself. When joy was arising, the mind tended to find its happiness outside. It would be through the beauty of nature, the faith in the three gems, the beauty of beings, qualities of heart. But as it settles into us, then the mind finds its peace within itself, finds its contentment in itself and no longer has to reach out, looking outside itself. That collects the mind to a yet deeper level of what's called concentration, a state of deep stillness, relaxation, ease, peacefulness inside. And as the mind gets so stilled and peaceful in that way, and then it investigates the nature of the mind and body and of life, then from that place, the liberating insights can come through. And from the liberating insights, the heart is freed. So joy plays a role in a few different places along this, an energizing role in the beginning of waking us up, tuning us into the beauty of life, collecting the attention in the moment, and then settles out into this deep contentment from which insight arises. As we progress on the path, these qualities all come more and more alive for us, qualities of joy and contentment, and we feel that we're living life from a much richer, more satisfied, more heartfelt, happier place. The Buddha said something really interesting about this growth of happiness in the path. He said one of the things that he never lost sight of in his whole practice career was not to settle merely for wholesome states of mind. I was kind of shocked when I first heard that because when I began practice, if I could have found consistent wholesome states of mind, I would have been really happy. The Buddha said, don't settle just for wholesome states of mind, but use the wholesome states of mind as the foundation for the heart's liberation. Because more is possible. Further development is possible. The complete end of suffering is possible for us. And he expressed this most clearly in another discourse called the simile of the heartwood, where he said that The goal of this holy life is not virtue or fame or the peace of concentration or even insight. But he said, it is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life. It's heartwood and its end. This is what our Vipassana practice is aiming for. This is what our metta practice is contributing to, nothing less than the full liberation of our hearts and minds. So let's just sit together for a moment in silence, please.
It is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 18, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.